Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. You can't just say daddy's gone away, mommy's gone away, Aunt Sally, your brother's gone away. Say he has a disease. And this is, a, you know, again, it, whether it's alcoholism or a brain disease, and this is what it is because the kids are really walking around with a knapsack of, of stones on their back and letting them know again that they didn't cause this, they can't cure it, that and making sure that while someone's in treatment, that they have access to FaceTime or other things. It's not a punishment. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loblossing Game, and I am your host. Woo! Today on our episode of Ask the Expert, we have Dr. Louise Stanger. Dr. Louise focuses on strength-based solutions and invitational change. As the 2019 Interventionist of the Year, she is not only an Ivy League Award winner, but also an educated social worker, author, internationally renowned clinician, and speaker on mental health, addiction, process disorders, and chronic pain. She has performed thousands of family interventions throughout the United States and abroad. In addition to her years of experience, Dr. Louise is a published author whose work covers a range of topics, including mental health, substance abuse and well-being, the opioid epidemic, marijuana and other drugs, parenting, high wealth clients, finding happiness, spirituality, failure to launch, chronic pain and pain management, family, and many more. Her latest book, Addiction in the Family, Helping Families Navigate Challenges, Emotions, and Recovery is a number one bestseller on Amazon. Dr. Louise lives in Marina Del Rey with her husband, John, and their doodles, Teddy and Coco. Together, they have seven grandchildren ranging from kindergarten to a senior in college. In her free time, Dr. Louise loves having overnights with the grandchildren, swimming, soul cycling, and traveling. Woo, woo. Dr. Louise. Oh, this was so fun. I uh, have a small career history um, of being an interventionist, and it was one of my favorite experiences and favorite jobs positions that I have ever had. I look back very fondly on those times. Unfortunately, with young children and my life, I do not have time to fly all over and do interventions the way that I did. But man, it was such a rewarding experience, truly, truly working with families. And Dr. Louise has worked with thousands. She's a she's an expert. And it was really incredible to hear her experience and her advice. And I even got an assignment from Dr. Louise at the end, which I plan on doing. So Without further ado, I hope you enjoy Ask the Expert. I hope you go to her website, All About Interventions, watch her videos, read her books. It is so, so worth it to learn about addiction, learn about addiction in the family, and learn how the pros are showing up for their clients. Without further ado, I give you Dr. Louise Stanger. All right, episode 108, let's do this.
You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. I'm so excited to meet you, Ashley. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm so excited to have you here. Oh, interventions are one of my favorite topics. So this is just, I'm really, really excited. Dr. Luis, welcome to the program. So the first thing we do on this episode is we talk about the, we, it's usually worst haircut or worst. We have some sort of, it's, it's morphing. Okay. It's this picture, but I have a picture of you. Um, I don't know about worst, but it looks adorable. And you're in a bunny costume. Oh, yes. <laughs> so this is, I always start off with, tell me about this picture. It'll go up with the episode and we, this is our little icebreaker for you. Okay, great. So I have this picture of you in the bunny costume. What is going on? How old are you here? And what is going on in your life at this time? So um, I really think at that point, I was about seven years old and I had really, or eight, and definitely had gone down the rabbit hole. That's a picture from Miss Robin's dancing school. I could have sent you a picture of me being a washerwoman. Mm. I don't know what else. But the truth of the matter was that was an incredibly sad time. My father, Sidney Sam Wallach, had had died by suicide. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had, not till many years later, did I learn that he followed in his mother and father's footsteps. And oh, wow. everybody in my family held secrets. And even I wasn't even told about how he died until I was on a playground. And some little snotty, uh, redheaded, freckle-faced girl named Ruthie Ann skipped over to me and said, I know how your daddy died. I knew how he died. <sighs> I would have told you he was Superman and had been taken out by kryptonite. But really, our, my world was shattered. I'm sure my mother, in retrospect, her world was shattered. She wrapped her arms, I guess, in alcohol and um, subsequently not too soon after a new gentleman Mm. um, ease her pain and everything but that's so the bunny did go down the rabbit hole so to speak but it also signifies dancing with resiliency I love that. I love that. Well, thank you for sharing that. And, you you know, the dying by suicide, I I find that it's very interesting what stories that the children get told. It's often, there's often a lot of, you know, tiptoeing around the topic and, and that they, that even in that, you know, when people recall their stories of their childhood, losing a parent um, to suicide, they, the way that it came out is so important. How, how, you know, as, you know, and we'll get into this, but as, as an expert at, at this stage of your life, what do you see as the most successful way to tell a child that their, their parent, how their parent has died, if it was self-inflicted? So I think when you talk about suicide, it is a brain disease and that's pretty well established. And so you can say that your loved one died by suicide, but I want you to know this is a brain disease. And I also want you to know that there was nothing in the world you could do to prevent it. You didn't cause it. You can't cure it. 
you couldn't change it because, you know, when you, the world is just me, so to speak, you have magical thinking and mm. you think if only I had done this, adults do that all the time with death. But I think it's really important for a child to know that there's nothing they could do because oftentimes you go back in your memory bank and you say, Oh, well, maybe I didn't do yeah. this right. Or maybe I didn't do that right. But I think having an honest discussion and it depends on the age of the child too. You know, if you're explaining death to a three-year-old, for example, I'll take a piece of my hair or you take a piece of your hair, pull it out, pull it out. Ow. Ouch. Ah, that hurt. Right. Right. So that's just no more. And that's really because they don't have concept of date or time. You know, I was seven or eight. I understood that he wasn't coming back, but I wasn't told that I wasn't even allowed to go to the funeral and that, that was always um, a wrong move. Um, Yeah that, you know, you can't be afraid, but they did. But again, when I work with families today, I always give them no fault insurance, so to speak, that they Mm -hmm. did the best they could do with the resources they can. And maybe now they can learn to do something different, but you can't imagine like with sudden death, the shock, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And you, you know, you, you are a, you know, well, world-renowned interventionist and have been recognized by many, you know, reputable bodies and spoken and, and done interventions for many, many years now. And, and, uh, intervention, you know, which is, which is why we wanted to talk to you about interventions, um, on this, this episode of ask the expert and, you know, interventions for me, if, if I could go off and do something and, and, you know, travel, money, all the things that go into, you know, life would be no object. That's what I would do. I, I was trained as um, an Arise in the Arise model oh, interventionist okay. under Dr. Judith Landau. And, and, um, and I had a, you know, short period of time where I did lots of um, interventions and it was a beautiful experience. No one understands that <laughs> when I tell them that, how could that be a beautiful experience? And it was, it was so amazing. It's such a thrill. It's so, um, particularly using the, the invitational, which I know that you do, it's, uh-huh. it's a, it's a paradigm shift and, you know, the, uh, the, so, you know, one thing that I want to get you talking about, right, is the invitational versus the Johnson model. The Johnson model is the one that most people know. It's probably the one I I believe they use it on the TV show, which is where everybody, you know, invites you to some event that is not happening. You show up and it's your intervention. Everybody's in a circle, (laughs) which is very different from the one that you and I um, were trained in. So I want to start there with, tell me about the model that you use that has been so successful for you in your career. Okay. So first I'm going to correct you. There is no model. I've held, um, over $5 million of NIH and IAAA grants. Okay. And to have a model, you need evidence-based research. And the only person I know that's really done that is, and I love Judith, it's not just really Judith, is is Miller and Rolnick, who were um, motivational interviewing. You have to understand that I was a professor for many years. So, Oh, yes. Um, Give it to me way, straight. Yeah, so I need, need all the fact-checking. So I do believe it's a process. Okay. And I believe there's many different processes and that you end up using yourself. So I learned interventions um, actually from someone that nobody seems to remember or recognize. Um, when I was asked to develop the first graduate seminar in substance abuse at San Diego State, 
for NFTs for everybody. You know, I lived in San Diego. Betty Ford was just starting. And along the way, people would come through San Diego. And into my classroom one day came a gentleman as short as I am. He was tall and stately. And his name was Dr. Frank Picard. And he had been best friends with a guy named Dr. Vern Johnson, who is the granddaddy of intervention. I'll quit tomorrow. Well, Dr. Picard wrote a book and it was called Family Intervention. And gosh, when he spoke, my heart stopped. I love excitement. I love adventure. I'm an adult child. I'm an alcoholic. I worked in the ER. I'm great with sudden death, grief and loss. And when he spoke, it was a little bit different than Vern. I said, I can do that. And so he mentored me. And that's, and the first things we did was we learned surprise. Well, that was very uncomfortable for me because I don't like surprises. And then I also didn't like the idea that you would go and be a lone ranger or go by yourself. I don't, I think that is foolhardy and not a good process. So Along the way, I said I would only team with someone else and I would invite people to change. So the textbook talks about collective intervention strategies, which means it's collective and that it's a group. Um, It's a strategy because you're using a variety of different modalities, et cetera, et cetera, and you're inviting people to change. Now, you can invite people to change on a a court step. You can invite people to change lately. The last three I've done, they've been in substance, they've been in hospital Mm -hmm. and you can do that, but you put together a team and, you know, I have, I love Judith. And so I have, I mean, I guess a RISE certified, I've done intervention, you know, trainings. I do not teach intervention except on a graduate level. Um, I'm just a little bit, I don't know. I, I think it should be done in graduate school. And I'll leave it like that. But I have developed my own. I use a research methodology called portraiture, which was developed by Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot. She's the only endowed chair at Harvard that when she dies, it will revert back. And the way I learned about her qualitative research was when I was when I did my dissertation, I did something I was really passionate about, not something I was already famous about, which was alcohol and other drug prevention. I did I interviewed women and men who were widowed at a young age because mm-hmm. I had once been a third generation widow. And portraiture is just a way in which with words you interview everybody and you end up with a portrait. So my team and I interview everybody individually. I never put you in a team beforehand. And you know, it, it's very different than um, what you see on TV, which is staged. And I'm in a textbook that says interventions are uh, opposing viewpoints. Interventions aren't made for TV, but God bless them. They made it very, very popular. Uh, but it is an art. I'm not interested in just showing up and helping someone get to uh, a behavioral health care center. I'm not related to any behavioral health care center. So I always have independent. I have to give three different. But what we're interested in now is, is building scaffolding, care management, so the, and changing the whole system. However you define family. Family could mean naval family or it can be the board of directors the business manager for the celebrity. So um, I think I'm grateful to all the people that teach and that have written books. But in the end, I believe 
that you have to use yourself. It's really good to have a clinical background, a lot of high acuity. I do high acuity mental health, substance use, chronic pain, and process disorders. So not eating disorders um, or anorexia, not anorexia. But I mean, it requires a lot of skill, a lot of patience, and you really need to know what you're doing. Plus, you really want to be able to follow someone inside of a center Mm -hmm. Um, because you're not a drop-off service. And then you really want to think about six months out, what kind of scaffolding can you create? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, you know, it was amazing to me and, and I'll have you, you know, share your experience. I'm sure it's, it's, you experience this as well. You know, first my background, I come from having, being someone who went to a lot of treatment centers who had, you know, various intervention type things, um, transports, you know, you name it. And so what was interesting to me learning about the invitational intervention versus the surprise one, which I think is, again, what most people listening probably are familiar with, the invitational one where we would invite. So I'm sitting in a class learning about you invite this person to their intervention. And I laughed. I laughed. I literally said, I raised my hand and I said, look, I've, you know, I I have a a clinical background. I have a, a personal background. I've been to every level of care that exists. There is no effing way I would ever show up to my own, you know, whatever. And, and, and we'd describe, and I had such a hard time believing that it's possible. Like, no one would do that. No one would show up. And it was, it was, I was adamant that this was ridiculous. And, and then I went out and I did it and I, and I used the tools and the methodology and then also, you know, the art, the personal art that we all have around, we're all going to be discussing this, whether you're here or not. So you might, you know, and all the, all the things. And I, every single one, Dr. Louise, every single one they showed up, I couldn't believe I, even myself, I was sitting there going, there's no way. And they did. And, and it was, you know, and it was a really interesting paradigm shift for me about how to think about the addict and the alcoholic, even as one, I wasn't giving them that dignity, even as one, even being myself. Right. And And, and, and let me challenge one more time. Yes, please. Well, first of all, I love what you're saying because um, I think that really I, everybody has that fear. No one's going to come. They're not going to show up. They're yeah. going to run away. You don't know what you're talking about. Right. And, and, you know, and sometimes you do end up with a surprise because someone forgot it. But we always tell people in the beginning, look, you can, you can say to your loved one, look, we have a family problem and we're going to find a family solution. And so it's upfront from the get go that there's something going on that you're not just hiding behind their back and jumping through and saying, guess what? Here I am. Although that has happened to me, even in the best late plans um, there. And then, um, no, I, I share your excitement with, you know, what happens. And um, I, the other thing, what I was going to say is when I talk to families I say that people experience a substance use, a mental health, anxiety, depression, chronic pain. I never, ever label anyone an alcoholic or an addict because for me, those are, you know, and that's an easy way to to get that imaginary distance between, you know, this person and that. And I make that really clear in my latest book because those are beautiful, beautiful self-definitions that one uses in 
a support group that you get a choice to use. But right. far be it for me to say that, just like I wouldn't call you, oh, hi, anxiety, hi, depression, or <laughs> I self-labeled myself, I, I self-revealed, you know, I'm an adult child of an alcoholic, therefore the grace of God goes me. I'm sure I have isms, it just doesn't have to be alcohol or other drugs. So, you know, and I think that's a message to give to your listenership because it's really important and we're not there to judge or blame. Yes. People experience terrible things. They do awful, no good, really bad. They rob, they cheat, they steal, you know, that you, you wouldn't call an interventionist unless you're, you're at your wits end. Mm -hmm. And I, I love that. And I, even did it to myself, which was the old, which was the ultimate thing, like the degradation of like the choice, all of those things. And there were, there were two other things that I, about doing interventions. One, the, the other thing was I spent all my time with the family. It was so, it was cake getting the person into, to, to, into tree by the time you get everything else. But I mean, 90% of the time is with the family. I could, it was a family intervention. It was not a, that person. I could read the situation. I said, look, you just tell them this, this, and this, and they, you know, by virtue of what's going on, they will agree because these are the things that are going on. No, 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 they won't. It, I mean, it was like, all the family. I could not believe it. And then the other thing, the last thing, and again, I'll, and I'll shut up and I want you to talk all about it is the people who call me and they ask me to tell them how to do the intervention on their own family member. That's (laughs) (laughs) First of all, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think in my first book, which is a memoir called following up, I have a chapter, nothing changes till something changes. And 97% of all the work is done up front with whatever that group is. And when you're doing that, though, and you're inviting people to be interviewed, you're also always looking for that outlier, that person that they say can't be in part of the group, but that's the person that ultimately is sometimes key to making um, a change. And oftentimes I do have people that call up and say, you know, I've read your book or I've heard about you. And I have a, because I was a professor, I have endless amounts of free information on my website. I I just believe in that. But nonetheless, um, can you coach me to do this? Can uh, we want to do it? And, you know, you can never, if you say, if that's what you want to do, I'm happy to work with you in a coaching relationship. This is what I can do not do. And, you know, sometimes they could be um, successful. I remember a family, a really lovely family, and they had Kaiser insurance. I won't work with Kaiser insurance if my life depended on it. <laughs> Kaiser doesn't take any intervention. So, and I said that up front, I said, but, you know, if you can figure out that we can do this, we can do that, do that. And it worked. Or I've coached families that have ended up with loved ones having, you know, never met them in person. It really mm. depends on... And the person's been in treatment for over two years. So, you know, I think you have to go with, you have to do that old thing and start with your client is and let them navigate. If I'm doing in-person interventions, I always have another team member with me. And that other team member, I don't, I never call, I, I don't like first, they're equal to me. They're equal. There's no such thing as a first or second chair. I, I never understood that concept. You know, um, because I believe my teammates are equally as talented as me. Each one of us brings something different. Somebody's going to like somebody. I can always be the clinical happy. That I have um, in all situations. And usually I always team with someone who is in recovery. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I like that. You, you, the, um, and I love your experience around coaching because that was something that's been something that I, I, you know, wasn't a big, but it wasn't a big fan of helping with. Cause it just, you know, my experience was that, that, you know, if you need a plumber, right. You hire a plumber, you, you, you if you need a specialist, you hire that specialist, but you know, you're right. You have the, everybody works with, that doesn't mean you give up and, and all sorts of scenarios and creating those relationships. So that's great. The other piece, and you talked about this a bit in the beginning as it related to the photo, uh, the rabbit hole, which is, I found it very interesting how people tried to exclude children from the process who were being subjected to the consequences of their loved one's addiction. It, you know, even seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, who absolutely understood that something was wrong, that is upsetting and, 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 they include, they were forced to include them in the home life and the outcomes and the negativity, but they didn't want to include them in this transition, in this honest, authentic conversation. And I felt that it was a really interesting thing to see, you know, um, you know, from a clinical like study perspective. Wow. We're willing to have, you know, this happen without conversation because it makes us uncomfortable to talk about it, even though we're doing something about it. And I wanted to know, tell me about your experience with that. So I think that's your comments are great. So with every family I work with, I do this really family map, which I need 18 pieces of color. So I know who the kids, the children are, and I've had children as young as five be in um, the intervention. And, you know, I say like, you know, I encourage where you run into a little bit of hiccups is if you're talking about a divorced couple, mm-hmm. you need both parental consents. But, you know, when I, I always make sure I try to make sure I'm good friends with Jerry Moe, who probably is the most forerunner for children, trying to get people to go to the children's program at Betty Ford, mm. letting them know, giving them the language. What do I say? What do I do? You can't just say daddy's gone away. Mommy's gone away. Aunt Sally, your brother's gone away. Say he has a disease. And this is, a, you know, again, it, whether it's alcoholism or a brain disease, and this is what it is because the kids are really walking around with a knapsack of of stones on their back and letting them know again that they didn't cause this, they can't cure it, that and making sure that while someone's in treatment, that they have access to FaceTime or other things. It's not a punishment that, you know, so you have to be really careful with treatment planning and placement. Where is someone going to go? What is their access? What is their availability um, for that? But very much, and I guess what we do try to do is solution-focused family recovery coaching. So, and that's because I'm very solution-focused. I think in these days, they talk about ACT, but it's all, that's just fancy, am I? And ACT, TMI, but, you know, it's really like, what can we do to help this family change and become there? And what can we be honest? Does that mean we encourage the family to speak to the school psychologist if they're in school to let them know? Because one out of every three families has an alcohol or drug problem, and millions of people are suffering from anxiety and depression um, right now. So there should be no secret, but it also has to be age-specific. You have to acknowledge and you have to really, you know, you can do it through play. You can do it through sand. 
that you have to really acknowledge that they didn't cause anything because that the paratoxic distortions that take place as a young one is really awful. And then if you pretend everything's okay, it sets the stage for later trauma because they're walking around and they know something's really wrong, but everybody's saying, oh, let's go, you know, it's like Disneyland, you know. Right, right. The incongruency is the trauma. Yes. Yeah. So for for the listeners, a lot of the, um, some of the most common calls, I, I want, I, I get a lot of parent calls who have children who were similar to my situation who want, you know, who want feedback. Could you walk me through some, you know, uh, vignettes, so to speak, some, some, some cases, we could make up a couple cases of young adults and, and uh, over 18. <laughs> so funny. I just wrote, that's my blog this week. Oh, it is. Just- psychosis and drug. Yeah. I do weekly blogs and everything. I, I don't know that you subscribe, but let, let's, well, I will now. And, and the same thing with the book, um, you know, um, that I just wrote addiction in the family. It, it's really like, you know, people call you when their heart is breaking. Um, tell me about Johnny. Well, Johnny is 16 years old. He's locked himself in this room. He's smoking marijuana six to seven times a day. How's he getting it? Oh, I bought it for him. He also has some Xanax with him. He, you know, in this day and age, because of Zoom, he was a straight A student, but all of a sudden, he is no longer interested in school. He's argumentative, he's erratic. And he might end up 50, what we call 5150, you know. Right, 72-hour cycles. Well, or, or a 14-day hold because of the the, the sativa, the 97% mm. cannabis that's using. Got it. I mean, I think I might get three phone calls or more like that a week. And I, if I'm getting it, so are my, my colleagues about young people imploding, not being able to launch, not being able, and turning out to be like these roaring lions, pretty angry, pretty, um, really challenging. That's one type of call I get. Then I also get calls about executives, Hmm. whether it's a male or a female. And then they tend, they could be in their fifties, they could be in their sixties, forties, but somehow their life has just taken them back. And whether that's, they had, you know, some of those might've had chronic pain. They started out with um, some sort of chronic pain and chronic pain could be fibromyalgia, it could be migraines, it could be, you know, a broken shoulder or anything, but they, they had an opportunity for opioids and their opioids have gone wild. They're also mixing with alcohol. When you look back, they have some childhood types of trauma and they are not thriving, but they're really a grouchy, very, very grouchy. And, and again, you know, it's sort of that sort of similar scenario where they're not um, thriving or you have, you know, oftentimes you might have parents who's when they asked you, they want you to intervene on one and you end up saying, no, I can't do that till I, till you go get help, which mm-hmm. I've done. So you just, because someone calls you up for an intervention, I guess you really have to start where they are. And I remember one family, delightful family, a gentleman called me very successful family. And he wanted an intervention done on his wife. She had chronic pain. She had migraines. She had a lot of grief and loss. Her one son had overdosed, but mm. they sort of kept it a secret. They didn't want to tell anybody. 
she sort of hid in her room. And, but he too had some other issues. He mm-hmm. was a regular pot smoker. He hadn't grieved at all. And, and I said, well, I don't think I can really get, we can't really get her to go to treatment until you go for an evaluation. So we mm-hmm. actually switched the scenario around. He went for an evaluation and, and we did that. And so um, people will call you up, but again, I bet, guess the most basic tenor is people do not call someone like me up unless their hearts are hurting. Yeah. Unless they beg, borrow, steal. They might call you up because someone told them, oh, call her. And it might be a large family, like a family foundation, and the head of the, the head of the family is just gone off the deep end. Or it could be um, for an older adult, it could be a daughter calling up saying, I'm never going to talk to my mother again. Why am I never going to talk to my mother again? Because she put the two-year-old in the golf cart, but she was drunk. And she turned the flip the golf cart and she broke the little girl's thing. Or you may have someone who comes from a different culture and Mm. really very bright and very successful, but she modulated um, her trauma with, um, with, with alcohol and other drugs. It actually was in a car accident and the jaws of life had to remove her children. So uh, sometimes cases come with legal issues already straight mental health. You have to fetter out after a while. Um, had a client that I worked with the family for over four months and tried to join up with her delusion and was able to do that. So, you know, I don't think there's any more like the easy run of the mill person that calls you up and says, Hey, my family needs an intervention. They, they're just, I have alcohol. It's very rare. There are multiple drugs. There's multiple issues. You really need to take a look at family history and then you need to um, understand the cultural backgrounds of the person, what their financial competencies are, because mm-hmm. um, there's different ways of doing things, and then give them those three best and set them up for success and create that scaffolding. I hope that's enough examples for Oh, you. yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I love that you talk about the scaffolding. One thing that I say just generally when talking about addiction is what I've seen is that people spend, you know, if they have a budget, what they do is they find the the fancy 30-day treatment center because, you know, it's, it's a lot of money, therefore it's going to, you know, cure them and what have you. And they take, you know, this budget, they take 90% of that budget and they put it into the 30-day treatment center because they think that that's the way to go. And, and, and there's no you know, or very little money left over for aftercare or any, you know, the long-term thing. And I always say, it's like buying a Bentley and not getting an oil change. It, <laughs> I love that. It, it, it doesn't make it, you wouldn't do it, right? Why would you put all that money in and not, and not maintain it? It's going to, it's not going to work. Yeah. Right? And so, so I love that. That was just great. I think I'm going to borrow that, like buying mm-hmm. a Bentley and not giving an oil change. No, it, even my paperwork is 90 days because we know evidence-based, it takes 90 days to change a behavior. So I want to be with that family or that group of people that long. But the thing is that when you look at it, it's really easy. And for your listenership, just think about the age someone started using. So if, say you're 35, you started using at 15. Well, that's half your life. So you know that it's going to take more than 30 days to get well. So when we think about it, I try and 
projectile six months. I mean, you, mm-hmm. when you're working with families, if you go a year or more, unless they, they, they get a little nervous, but you know, in your heart that is. So when you're thinking about, and that's, there is an art to treatment planning and placement and someone could call me up or I could get a referral, but it's not the right place. Or the family says, well, I found X, Y, Z treatment center. I go, well, do you, I am not even familiar with X, Y treatment center. Let, if we work together, certainly we can take a look at that. Let me vet it, but let's see what the best is based on like a retrospective biopsychosocial plus what your pocketbook can do. Look, you can spend $300,000 a month at Kushnacht in Switzerland. You can also go to the Salvation Army in San Diego and be and 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 have something. There's all kinds in between. Yep. Yep. There's, and, and it's really when, you know, when you're looking at budget, it's just so important. I, I really, as I'm sure you would appreciate, I, I, it's so important to look at it as a long-term plan, right? As a long-term plan. Again, if any other chronic disease, we, we, we you know, if it's chemotherapy, if it's, um, you know, if someone has diabetes, you know, if we're doing, if we're, if you're doing dialysis, right, you're not planning on a short period of time. This is, this is, you know, uh, cleaning the blood in, 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 in the, of the brain, essentially. It's not, it has to be done over and over and over again, over a relatively long period of time. And that's hard to swallow when you're the family member and you just want it, to, you want, like, let's get this show on the road. Let's get, you know, back. Well, I think it's just get it fixed. I think you have to do things in small increments and again, start where the family is. Families don't like to know that they're doing therapy. They really like when you say solution focused coaching and then, you know, really understand where they're coming from. If you don't join up with the family, I don't think you can join up with the person, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes, you know, it's really good that they, that the identified loved one that I call it doesn't come home. It's not a good place for them. And so it would, and does it do more harm than good? And giving everybody sort of that rest break to detach because families have unconsciously aligned. And so there's some payoff um, unconsciously gratification of keeping the status quo. So what you're doing in inviting some of the changes, you're breaking that status quo. The person you're sending to a behavioral health care center is lucky because they get intensive totally. treatment. So it's our obligation, our ethical responses, to help send these people and teach them, you know, in a psychoeducational and then refer out if they need other types of auxiliary help. Because if you don't change what's over here, this person cannot come really back in there without them. You know, it's like going back home. When you were a little kid and you, you went away to school, then you came back home and everybody started treating you the same way you were, even though you had just graduated college or something, mm-hmm. or you got married, you know, and you weren't that little kid. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Christiana, your producer. And if you're like me and you love coffee or coffee alternatives, you can now shop with the cause by visiting lionrock.life and clicking on shop. of the profits fund substance abuse treatment for those who can't afford it. You can't really go wrong. We're now carrying, in addition to our amazing coffee, if you haven't tried it, matcha maiden organic matcha powder. Love me some green tea. 
Golden Grind Turmeric Latte Blend and Prana Chai Original Blend. So we've got something for everyone. We love mixing these delicious coffee alternatives with something like milk or almond milk, oat milk, or even just hot water. The organic matcha powder is vegan-friendly, gluten-free, dairy-free, and simply delectable. The Turmeric Latte Blend, the winner of Australia's Best Beverage product in 2017, helps bring about relaxation and restoration while also nurturing your body. The Prana Chai, that has been my pregnancy craving, it's amazing, is blended in Melbourne from all natural ingredients and uses 100% Australian quality honey blended by hand with tea and whole spices. By shopping for coffee and coffee alternatives at lionrock.life, you are also helping provide substance abuse treatment for someone who can't afford it. Your favorite drink with the cause. So again, go to lionrock.life, click on shop, and you'll see our coffee and our brand new coffee alternatives. We hope that you enjoy it. Send us a picture. Maybe we will feature you on our Instagram as well. Yeah, it's um, an experience I had. My sister, my I, I, I was the I created a very traumatic environment in my home for my family. Very, very traumatic overdoses, violence, you know, all sorts of disappearances, the, the whole thing. And when I went away to treatment, my family was left, and my sister, my who's two years younger than I am, she and I used together quite significantly, and and you know methamphetamine in grade school, and you know things like that, quite quite significantly. And I always have felt this, you know, and she and I have since talked about it, and and but I've always felt this guilt because I went away and I got all this help, and I got all because I was so acute, but she was just not as acute in comparison, but it was only, only in comparison. It, it wasn't in comparison to the people down the street, Pe- compared to the people down the street, she needed help too. Right. But when you have this person, that's just, you know, a complete and utter hurricane, everything else looks like, you know, a passing okay. storm. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the, I left my family with, you know, all this trauma and I went away and got help. And, and it, I do see that. I do see that, you know, the person who's getting help, the, the identified loved one often gets better and everyone else is left trying to pick up the pieces and not knowing why they feel this way and, and being damaged. Well, I'm not going to let you take all the responsibility for creating all the trauma. I will let you take responsibility <laughs> for creating havoc because okay. when, when you have it, when you're at dis-ease, you do things that are just outlandish, horrible. You lie, you cheat, you steal, you yell, you scream, you carry on. But that's when you're in the disease. Everybody has a part to play in the system. So somebody else does it. I guess, you know, as a clinician interventionist, my job is not just to get you help, but for your sister. And that's really what a good clinician interventionists will do is say, hey, let's take a look at Susie. Let's take a look at Johnny. They need to get help. They need to have connection because they're they're rolling. I remember a family, um, and I have to change everything. It was a 16-year-old boy. The family's history was father, they sort of looked like a Norman Rockwell painting, but they weren't. 
each one of the mom had a tenuous, his, her father was a, um, a, a vet, had post-traumatic stress. Her mother mm-hmm. had mental illness. Um, she really didn't, and she, uh, her husband really ran away from home and didn't really have any social supports like Tony Robbins a lot or coaching a lot. And then they had a daughter that was a freshman in college. She was sort of out there, you know, with mental health and substance use. And then, of course, the hurricane hurricane was Mm -hmm. using your words was a young man who was about 16 smashing in windows Mm -hmm. windshields but it was the marijuana and the pot and and everything that was there but if you're really good then you've got to take care of high acuity first okay but then second was making sure especially the daughter that she got help and then that the family got some individual or separate counseling, you know, that they're willing to do. I mean, it takes a lot of work to change a village, but I, you know, again, you know, that young man was responsible for the kind of havoc he did, but there was a lot, I guess my moral to is there's always havoc in a family that you might've responded to that you didn't react to that, that you might've acted out about or whatever, but you didn't, you can't be that, you know, you didn't cause all of it. <laughs> fair, fair, fair. You're right. And, and I should, that's my, uh, my narrative therapy, uh, practice, right. Is, is really working on the narrative that I have as well. Yeah, uh, to rewrite your story. To rewrite so my story. To the best possible self, you know, and, and, and know that other people had a part and yes, you can make amends for your part. And certainly this podcast is, you know, amazing and, and who you are today, is amazing and and giving an opportunity just to say those things. Thank you. Yeah, you're right. Totally right. It's always, you know, it's always, I love being in a growth mindset allows you to absorb new information in a way that makes it not scary or harmful, right? When I, when I live in a place of not able to absorb and for anybody, everyone's a threat. Every, every new, all the new information is a threat to that current belief system. And so it really, it's, it's less anxiety provoking to be just like, oh yeah, I can still, I'm still growing. I'm still growing. It's okay to still be growing. Do you, um, you know, during this, this COVID period, I know what I've seen, and, you know, it's, it's a lot of, of, you know, people on the edge tipping over, you know, a lot of, dep- you know, a lot of mental illness, all, but, but the acuity stuff, what is the stuff that you are seeing that you think is really related to the pandemic lockdown COVID specifically, as opposed to just the, you know, the, the incremental increase on something that was already really bad. So I wrote a couple of weeks ago, three blogs. One was on decision fatigue. We make about 35,000 decisions per day. In COVID, we actually made less, but they were more stressful because we didn't know where to go, what to do, who could we see, you know, could we go to the grocery store and you were masked. So it was produced even more anxiety. The other thing we're seeing right now is re-entry anxiety okay, I get to come and see you, but like, should I go to that baseball game? What is it? I like, I want to work from home, just really fear. And I've had people call me and their, their five-year-old was afraid to go, or their four-year-old was afraid to go to preschool 
because they've been home. And, you know, what is this COVID thing? You know, COVID, I think we've been living in a collective trauma bubble, like chronic pain. You can't see it. You can't hear it. You can touch it. You can certainly see the effects of it. And then the third thing that I'm seeing is sleep disturbance, which I can even say that I've had in terms of not being able to sleep well and just trying to figure out how do we really navigate this world? I mean, because it was suddenly all of a sudden, you know, the world shut down on March 13th. I was, I had been presenting, which was the last live conference I did. It was in, um, in Washington and it was Providence Medical Center. And I, my ego was pretty big. I was talking about chronic pain, trauma, mental health. It was all docs, all docs. And we were getting ready to leave and they started talking about the plane. I go, what do I care about a plane? I cared about being on a plane home so I could fly out the next week to where I was, where I was doing a staff training that I was really excited about. I was very, and that plane was the first plane to bring people into the United States from China. And it was Providence Medical Center. And I remember coming back and I was like, it was going to be March 13th. I was going to go to LA. I was going to do that. Ah, no. People started screaming at me. You Mm -hmm. can't go anywhere. You're too old. You have to stay home. You can't go to a grocery store. Do you have like, like, you know, toilet paper? Do you have everything? And our world just really stopped. And, you know, people didn't know what to say, know what to do. I mean, I I had more vinegar in my house cleaning things. (laughs) And, I love you. Oh, and, that's good. And, and then I remember, I mean, and then you, you really were frightened. I mean, and yeah. was like they take away. So, you know, just re-entry anxiety. What does that mean? How do we do it? Like all of a sudden treatment centers are starting to market again. And, you know, I went to a conference in, in Florida and that was exciting, but, you know, and, and not to be on a Zoom world. Like people, I didn't know people were so tall. Um, But I did do interventions all throughout and always following COVID protocols. And I've been vaccinated since January 29th was my second vaccine. But I mean, the world was on stop. And when you have little kids saying their prayers at night, which my grandchildren, you know, please make this COVID go away and please protect everybody. You see how it permeated. I, you know, the tipping points, I think, were being on Zoom school. Whoever, I was a professor, come on. Whoever thought that you should teach a five-year-old, six-year-old, or seven-year-old how to go to school on Zoom, that's unfair, uncruel. And then gap years, like, how do you go, you know, you didn't get, like, just for teens, all of a sudden the connection, you know, what, what is the opposite of isolation and what is the key to recovery? It's connection. Right. Right. And then, you know, you, you hear about increased suicide amongst young adults, increased purchases over the internet of all kinds of, of drugs and everything, you know, and identity confusion, gender confusion, and, and, and nobody knew what the right thing to do was. I think that was the, that was the hardest thing. No decision, no people understood what in the world you're supposed to do. And so everybody was scared. 
a lot of fear, a lot. Of, and, and, uh, I have a four-year-old twin boys and, and, uh, yeah, they, they're, so they were three, uh, when the world shut down, I was locked in a house with three-year-old twin boys. Let me just tell you, I was, Oh my God, I have, uh, twin paternal twin boys that are grandchildren that are five. So I, I like, Oh, you know, I know you're for empathy. My God, yes. I lose my mind. Yeah. Yes. So you, you know exactly what it was like. So, but they were three, so that was even less, you know, even more chaotic and it broke my heart. You know, they would remind, we would get out of the car to go, you know, pick something up at target or whatever it was. And, you know, they'd remind me, mommy, your mask, you know, or, or they, like they, they, at this point, they really only remember a COVID world and, and, you know, going to the park and asking me about cooties and begging for, you know, it was, it was, it was hard enough as the adult. And as a parent, you want to, pr- you want to keep the world, you know, people say, oh, I forgot what the term is, but people say like, no, don't show them any trauma before like five, six, seven or something yeah. like no, no, no bad news. Right. You know, yeah. no bad news before that time. And of course the whole, you know, the whole thing was just trying to explain to kids who knew there was something going on, but didn't have the maturity to absorb it. And, and, and then also yelling at my parents, I, I did, I did the same. My mother was trying to fly and I said, you have got, and we all freaked out. I called my sisters. I was like, you need to call mom. And you know, just yelling yeah, I, I got to do. I got that. Oh but, you know, God! Um, you know, I understand that. No, and I, you know, it's very. Um, but I think it's just you know, and you're. I love what you just said. You know, they're COVID natives. We're COVID in, immigrants, and to um, you know, and they're co and they're natives to all the racism that happened this year, or all the explosion of of. So there were like just double whammies this year, but they're natives to that. And the other thing is, um, you know, school shootings that in, in, um, there is like, they're native to school shootings. They're native to violence. I mean, if you take a look and who wants to look at the news, I personally don't want to look at the news because it is so, um, yeah, it's tough. Um, especially for little ones and, yeah. Yeah. It is. It's, it's a scary, it's a scary, you know, it's, I, I think it was always scary. And I always think to myself, well, you know, the cold war people, it's always been, there's always been something right. And, you know, um, but in, in my talk, I get, you know, this job, I get to talk to a lot of really How cool. Wonderful. interesting. Yeah. It's such an exciting thing for me. And, um, and, you know, they're like, no, this is, this is really, you know, profoundly different, um, than many of the things that we've been through, you know, in our field, there's two things that I don't think are talked about enough. One is why are so many people attracted to children causing sexual abuse as, so we, 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 you and I work with a ton of, you know, whether it's just exposure or whatever, children who are sexually abused at a young age, which causes trauma, right? And it is so prevalent. And I wonder why aren't people talking about the fact we're talking about treating it, but we're not talking about preventing. And we're not talking about why are so many people attracted to prepubescent children and prevention. Um, and it goes kind of hand in hand. What should we as parents, right? My husband and I are both in recovery, both alcoholics. We have two, you know, fraternal twin little boys. I already see the stuff. <laughs> I, can, I can tell you that I can see that in my grandchildren. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Well, I see it. I see it. But my husband and I yeah. just, there, there are moments where we just look at each other, like, what do we do now? And 
So the prevention, the prevention question, I guess, really applies to both. But one is, why aren't we talking about so many people attracted to young children? Well, I think that that's really one of those taboo things like porn. You know, how do we talk about porn? And there's been an increase in porn sites. I'm not, um, you know, um, at the Meadows, um, Stephanie Carnes is probably the number one. She's really, really fabulous. I'm supposed to be teaching a course for her come fall on process addictions in the family. There's always been this sort of tone talk don't share. And yet when you look at, you know, like this is your body, you get to choose who touches it. And if someone touches you, we need to let them know, you know, we all know that in colleges, if we go up a little higher, you know, um, their sexual assault has always been a big thing. And I just noticed in one of the schools I just taught at, um, I was an administrator at the change org just came out with a petition against sexual assault because that's always been there. But then when you go back and you take a look at family of origin issues, is there anything that happened? And there's a lot of shame and embarrassment about touching and, you know, because somehow or other it's your fault. It's the same. I think it's the same psychological undercurrent that comes like, you know, if only I did something different, you know, then this wouldn't happen. Are you talking about the shame from the perpetrator, the victim or the parent? The shame from the, um, from the, from the victim, you victim. know, maybe from the victim, you know, and the parent it's, are they looking the other way? Is it that they don't see, they don't see, but then again, we know in addiction and denial, you know, is a great masker. So not being able to see, and then the willingness to be able to actually share and to investigate. Um, in, I think it was in the eighties or nineties, there was a big rash. Everybody talked about incest. Everybody talked about they were, and there was some, some idea that everybody was manip, everybody was raped. Everybody had incest. Everybody oh, had wow. sexual assault. And then it began, that was in the literature actually. Oh. Um, and then it, it, it sort of went down. But I think that as a public health harm reduction, mm-hmm. parents need to join together just as they would to reduce risk for alcohol and other drugs in their communities. They can take a look and, and teach about, like, how do I love my body? What does that mean? Who's allowed to touch? And what happens if someone, it, because you're the boss of your body? And and we have a lot of books. I mean, I took my kids to the doctor the other day and the doctor said, asked me, you know, can I do this exam? I said, yes. And then he said, did you see how I asked mommy if it was okay? We only let, mm-hmm. you know, we, so we, we, and I see, I see, so I see that changing and we certainly are reading books about it, but what I don't see people talking about, which to me, you know, and, and, and please correct me if you, if you think I'm focused on the wrong part, what I am saying is what? There's so many, you know, one in three, one in four, one in eight, right? Those are the numbers of, of, of children who will be sexually abused. Why are there so many people attracted to children and we're not trying to stop them, whether that's through, you know, which may be through more research around why they're doing that. And like, why aren't we trying to stop it before it starts by looking at the, the, mentality of the people doing it and either offering them treatment or finding a way to thwart that. I feel like no, 
and in the work that we do, we see it so much. We deal with it. I mean, every day we deal with it. We talk about I'm, I had sex, child sexual, you know, abuse. Why are we not? Why? why and I, I'm, I'm a Meadows alumni. I went to the Meadows, did my, <laughs> yeah, you know, love, um, you know, went to Pia's place after and, and, um, mm-hmm. you know, but we didn't, t- we don't, that's one group of people that's causing a lot of havoc that we're not talking about. Why do you think that is? It's not popular. I mean, I, I don't have a good answer for you other than it's really not popular. It's a, it doesn't sell. It doesn't right. sell. It's not marketable. You know, I can talk about me too. I can talk about sexual assault. I can ring in some big names. It's, it's just, you know, I'll be nice and controversial. How come only men because I know women take advantage of men. We haven't had anybody say, hey, you know, the Harvey Weinsteins. For every Harvey Weinstein, there's also a Shirley Weinstein, a woman that can do things. So we don't, we have this sort of still duality, but I think a public health harm reduction, and I think it's got to start with young children. So I know, like, for example, for my grandchildren, they, they have this program, you know, you're the boss of your body. And, and doing it that way, you know, and then making sure that those are through public health harm reduction. But, you know, when you stop to think about what sells in the media, yeah, alcohol, look, even opioids don't sell well in the media, for God's sakes. We still have an opioid crisis and a death. And even though HBO just did this special yeah. on the Sackler family, mm-hmm. we don't really have in the administration a really good drug policy or we don't really have we have a differential treatment depending on how much you can afford um i was you know um and we don't have you know even parent-based interventions so i think i guess i'm still like reeling from the fact that we don't give parenting courses how many parenting courses did you have you know, you're worried about that. I'm worried about like, I didn't know how to change a diaper. Did you? No, you didn't. You learned through osmosis. And so the things that are so important, we sort of dysregulate. Interesting. And, okay. And so I guess I, I get more on a soap opera. Yes, your issues are really important, but let's, you know, how do we begin to do a public health harm reduction in terms of, you know, you being the boss of your body? And you living in an environment because you have to realize that those people that are doing it are incredibly wounded. So were they beaten, were they molested as as a child and then they don't know how to do it, you know, you know, are they, you know, uh, you know, they have personality disorder, you know, so so within everybody, I think there are wounds and they're looking to self-soothe in all the wrong ways. But to empower people to be able to not have that happen. So, you know, what I hear you saying is that really that that because that's not popular, because people are not going to, you know, be interested in what is the mindset of the person perpetrating that we have to work with, you know, almost like positive. We have to go to empowering the children and empowering the parents and go from that standpoint, because we just. Yeah, I I think we have to create a positive crisis because that's what we do in interventions. We create a positive crisis and then we come up with a solution because every day. And and again, I don't know, there's not any good research out there. There's no big NIH and IAAA grant to do that, but there would be an NIH and IAAA grant to reduce risk. 
Right. <laughs> okay. So that's the reason I'm thinking of it like that. And in what way do we institute in schools and everywhere else, you know, ways in which we provide that. And then also understand that you, when you start talking about little kids, you're talking about teaching teachers and who knows what their backgrounds are, mm. or what their home lives are, or, and that's not a negative, but, or the nurses or the doctors, you know. Right. It's comprehensive. So the whole public health harm reduction that probably starts in kindergarten or preschool. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And, and, yeah, it's funny. I, I hired a parenting coach because I, I couldn't, we were having all these problems. My husband would look at me when the kids would melt down and I'd look at him and, and I thought, gosh, I don't know what to do here. And he would ask, he would say, but you're, you know, you're the mom, you're, you know, don't you know what to do? And, and I would, I don't, I don't know what to do. And, and, and I can't read enough books fast enough for each stage. And, and, uh, and I thought, well, okay, what do I do when I don't know how to do something? Okay, I hire an expert. You know, I find I find someone who knows how to do it, and and it was I. It was weird how abnormal that was. I, I I you know in that process of of reaching out to someone, this is the most important job I will ever have. I, it is the most profound effect on another human being I will ever have, and I'm guessing <laughs> I don't do that with other things, right? So ha- applying that same rigor to you know that that same value like showing up for my kids the way I show up for a test in you know grad school or other of <laughs> other areas right because I do I do I do prepare that way in other areas of my life but I'm I've been normalized it's been normalized however that it's okay for us to just make it up or do what our parents did well or you may be otherwise directed I remember as a young widow I had three children and I also taught and I experienced the sudden death of my first husband. And literally, I knew how to listen to not listen. So I would come home mm. from the university and everybody would sort of want me. Yep. And um, I could I could repeat what everybody said, but I really wasn't present. And, you know, there's no amount of parenting coach that could have helped in that situation. It would have been nice to have it. I mean, the therapist helped um, and everything, but I know I was non-intentional. In fact, I coined this term when I interviewed women who were widowed at a young, non-intentionally emotionally unavailable. So I own that mm-hmm. because it wasn't that you don't love someone. It's just that you just, your own brain was so fried that you could not really take that on too. And so now, I mean, I could repeat everything anybody said. That was the easy part. It was, could I be present? So you had to create some structures, just like you're creating solution. I had to come home. I had to be able to change my clothes. I had a mother's Mm. helper that might have been 13 or 14 to play with them. Then I could have to look at my mail and then I could come down and be present. But, uh, you know, that, that carried with me. I can be attentive and not be present. It's it, when you said that, uh, well, I related, um, but also when you said that, I thought about how non-intentional, emotional, not, not, not intentionally emotional, say, emotional yeah. pres emotionally present, right? 
Did I get that? No, right? non intentionally, emotionally unavailable. Unavailable. So I think that you love, you know, that gives you the option of thinking that you really love the person, you really care about them. And in that moment, you're not intentionally, emotionally unavailable. And what's going on with you that you cannot be 100% present? Where what, What's going on in your brain? What are you worried about? What's going on with you? So the first, the first thought I had with that was every parent on the planet on March 13th became unintentionally, you know, emotionally unavailable because we all got into the, into, we must've, you know, like a collective lack of being present for our children because we couldn't, because, because the TV had George Floyd being murdered on on, you know, the TV had, you know, people dying in refrigerators of bodies in New York City. You know, we became as a, as a society unavailable for our children that year. That was, that was the first thing, like, yeah. you know, we, whether you were before or not, you, you definitely, we all, ha- you know, that had to have happened for all of us. And, you know, the effect of that, you know, do you think that that we will see the, you know, do you think, are you concerned about the effects of what happened last year long-term of, of, you know, that there will be severe consequences? Well, I think they're going to be severe experiences that we're going to have to navigate through. Mm. We don't know yet what the effects are. We don't know. I think in, as far as I said, decision fatigue or collective trauma, we're all, we're waiting for another every day that you go, oh, there's another strain. Mm. Oh, there might be a third vaccine. You know, um, so everybody is, you know, you live in an existential world as if the world were okay. Because if you wait, if you go the other way, you can't function. But, you know, everybody's waiting to see. When you deal with parents who have teenagers who are home experiencing the the thing you've been, you know, the failure to launch also the aggression, the anger, because it's something I hear about a lot. And they call you for help. They've lost control of the person living in their house. They still are technically, you know, responsible for them, but they are no longer in control of them. They're using and the parents, everything they've tried, taken away, whatever it is, isn't working anymore. Um, what are some of the things that you talk about with those parents? What are the, some, where do you start with them? Oh, you start with listening. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and taking a look at what they're doing and what they're not doing, what their fears are, you know, what their fears are and what their hopes are, you know, and, and going from there because they're being held hostage, and, right? you know, and you've got to find out. And then, you know, I do this family map because I'm wondering where, you know, they're and give them wings, their bailer elders and everything, but what, what's their biggest fear and, and what, how, what can we do to overcome that? And what are they afraid of? You know, what if they said, you know, yes, I teach five magic words. Yes. No. Oh, really? And whatever, but yes, I mean, no, yes, we, we're going to have to do this, um, you know, and, and, and figure out what, that would be the strategies because most of the time they've been afraid to do anything. They've sort of been hiding and held hostage in their own home mm-hmm. with a couple families right now like that in a coaching relationship, not in, and then thinking about to, does someone need a higher level of care? And if so, being able to do that. But again, you've got to start where the family is and, and, and take a look and, you know, just, 
since you, you know, you, you might do old Mnuchin, you know, you know, is there, you know, is there a couple system, whatever that partner system, how's that functioning? Who's, who's the parents? Um, you know, what does that look like? Um, who, and, and the triangle, the Cartman triangle, you know, mm-hmm. how's it working in the room and then siblings. So who, who does that and cut, you know, and really start from there and, you know, have everybody start making decisions together and everything, but, you know, try and explore what their greatest fear is and helping them, you know, courage. We repeat what we don't repair. And if it's hysterical, it's historical and, you know, mm. having the courage to try something different. Right. The courage, right? Cause the courage, it's the courage to try something different because it's painful and scary to try something different. Even if what you have is painful and scary, you still know what it is. Mm-hmm. For people who are interested in learning more about interventions, you've written a couple of books on this. What are the books that you have written? And I know there's a few of them. Well, first of all, I just want to invite you to go to my website. It's really full of wonderful things. And I also have a YouTube channel with lots Yay! of videos on intervention. So you go to All About Interventions YouTube, or I think it could be Dr. Louise Stanger YouTube. My website is www.allaboutinterventions.com. Okay. If you want to learn about me and sort of my trajectory, um, you can check out my memoir, which is called Falling Up, a memoir of renewal. That's available on Amazon. And it also talks a little bit about intervention. The actual textbook is on, you know, the are, is available at bookstores everywhere, but I always send everybody to Amazon. It's called The Definitive Guide to Addiction Intervention, mm. a Collective Strategy. And then the new book, which is I've I I had a contract. I wrote it during COVID and it's really a guidebook that I wish I had had. I do not get receivables, but it has been number one several times since it's been launched in November. And it's called Addiction in the Family, Helping Families Navigate Challenges, Emotions and Recovery. And it really covers mental health too, but they didn't want that in the title. (laughs) You can pick up the phone and call me at 619-507-1699 because I pick up my own phone. I love that. I love that. That's huge. Maybe people don't know that that's a big deal, but it is. If Yeah, you know. it is. So someone said, oh, I thought you were an answer machine. I go, no. And, and, but the videos are really good. That yeah. We sat down one day and yeah, we sat down one day, my, one of my teammates and I, and we made these videos and they're really good. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to check them out. I think that's the you know the videos and making it accessible to people in a lot of different forms is is really the key. You know, podcast videos, read you know all the all the ways. Well, you're amazing. I really really appreciate your time and your expertise. So good to meet you. Likewise, likewise. I'm so just I'm so grateful for your knowledge base and that. Um, you're out there as a as a resource to people and offering people coaching and and all the different ways that you 
give families hope that there's change. I mean, that is, that's huge. People don't, you know, you can't see the way out when you're in it. You just can't. And so it's you, I, I know how people saw, you know, saw me as like a miracle worker. I'm thinking to myself, oh, geez, you know, how are we going to get through this? And, and they're, they, you know, they, they cannot see their way out. And you have done that for hundreds of families. And, and it's just such a cool job and, and, and a wonderful career in life. So thank you. Well, thank you and keep inspiring change. Keep doing what you're doing because it's obvious that you do it so well. And I'm just honored to be a guest on your podcast and really excited to meet you. And I guess you're also going to have and and learn how to celebrate yourself. I know you'll wake up every morning and do a grateful list, but tomorrow's challenge for me to you, from me to you is wake up and, and list three things about how you celebrate yourself. Mm, okay. Three things to celebrate. Okay. I like it. Okay. All righty. Well, All right. I hope to get to see you one day in person. Yes. Give that real hug. I, I would love that. I'm five, six. So there you go. Okay, <laughs> five, one, so I can okay. There we go. Thank okay. you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. LionRock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meeting schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at LionRock.life.